What in the world is that? Those are acorns, Brad. Acorns. Have you seen the trees this year? We're definitely having a bumper year. Oh, it's it's a bumper year, but there must be a thousand squirrels shaking those trees. <laughs> now what's happening? Hey, Brad, look over there. Craig is getting the dozer off the trailer. Do you know what you get when you put together millions of acorns with exposed mineral soil? What is it? Uh, what? It's oak regeneration, oh, Brad. Oak, oak regeneration. regeneration. Get it, get it. That's right. Yeah, and so Greg first, I think that sounded a lot more like hail on a tin roof. And, and you admit it, there is no dozer over there that we need a better soundtrack. Well, welcome to the wonders of podcast theater. It's all about creating an illusion, Brad. Did you know that? We're like the Willy Wonka of this stuff, aren't we? Yeah, Willy Wonka. Yeah. But that does not lessen the importance of mechanical scarification for natural regeneration. And that silvicultural technique is what we are talking about today, Mr. Hutnick. So welcome to Silvacast, everyone, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we are both silviculturists with the Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your hosts for today's show. Today's episode of Silvcast is brought to you by the Nelson Paint Company. Since 1940, foresters all over North America have relied on Nelson Paint for tree marking solutions. Nelson Paint manufactures paint designed to withstand the harshest weather conditions in the field, and the Nelspot tree guns have lasted the test of time. Visit nelsonpaint.com to learn more about their products. You know, Greg, I agree. We do our share of mechanical scarification for natural regeneration. There's oak, of course, but also jack pine, white pine, paper birch. Uh, and I've even seen it in gap-based systems here in Northern Wisconsin. Yeah, in Northern hardwoods, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, and these techniques vary in Wisconsin, right? It's not uncommon. We'll see foresters using straight dozer blades. Uh, we'll see them using salmon blades, which are kind of that root rake with a, a spade or a shoe on the bottom. Straight root rakes, of course, anchor chains, different kinds of woodland discs, uh, the old bracky scarifiers, and then there's other homemade creations too. Yeah, and yeah, I think we've been around long enough. We've seen, I've seen like old uh, tractor frames being dragged around in the woods. I've <laughs> yeah. seen uh, bunches of, of like semi tires being dragged around. So yeah. yeah, there are a lot of creative people out there. Yeah. Bed springs. Yeah. Oh, you I've name seen those. So basically all of these techniques are trying to mimic a disturbance, right? That would expose mineral soil and create seed beds appropriate for whatever target species uh, you're trying to get. And so today we're going to have a conversation with two foresters that have a lot of experience implementing these techniques. With us today are Craig Gombiuski, Forest Management Supervisor for Douglas County Forestry Department, and John Wendorski, Assistant Forest Administrator for Clark County Forestry and Parks. And we've worked with these two foresters on a variety of projects over the years. And, and they bring a wealth of experience and just the knowledge, just talking to these guys, always, I always learn something from it. So maybe for our listeners outside of Wisconsin, these techniques might not be familiar, but I'm guessing there are other methods and equipment equally as effective and I guess, you know, similar. So the principles would apply. So maybe this is, and I'm, I'll, I'll put it out there, Greg, maybe this is if you have questions or other things. It might be a good idea to send in a question to the Dropbox about scarification if, if we'd use something like that. Or uh, ideas on other, other stuff we don't talk about today. Um, yep. We'd love to see that in the Dropbox as well. Yep. And Brad, a brief reminder, uh, the end of the year is approaching. And if you still need continuing ed credits, please remember to check out the Silvacast website on how to get credits just for listening to Silvacast. And wait, oh yeah, there's a small quiz there, Haley. I'm, I caught it. It's easy. All right, welcome back to Silvacast. Our guests, Craig and John, welcome aboard. It's glad to, glad to see you. Yeah, thanks for having us. 
and see Greg. Now we're you see people, but we're a podcast, so oh, oh. I can tell how you kind of think about the world now, right? Oh. You're not a visual. You're a visual person, not a an audio oh, yeah. person. Okay, yeah. well, just picture Craig and John. All Even right. if you don't know what they look like, just picture them. Yeah. So for the both of you, uh, just so the audience who doesn't know what you look like or where you work, just tell us uh, where do you work and what's your job there? Sure. Uh, yeah, my name is John Windorski. I am the assistant forest administrator with the Clark County Forestry and Parks Department. Um, I started in uh, with Clark County back in 2012, got hired on as a forestry technician. And uh, since then, I've have been able to be promoted into the position that I've got today. Prior to that, I actually worked with uh, Wassa Paper up mm. in the northwest corner of the state. Mm -hmm. uh, I graduated UWSP in 2008 and got hired on with Wassa Paper. At the time, they had 70,000 acres that they managed. And that was right next door to, to Craig. So I'm pretty familiar with, with the Douglas County area as well. Uh, but then uh, 2012, they divested from their land base. Uh, Clark County had an opening and was fortunate enough to to start here and and have been here since. So it's been a been a fun little trip from red pine and jack pine to to aspen and oak. So a little bit of everything. Yeah, cool. Craig, how about you? Well, I uh, work for Douglas County Forest Department. My name's Craig Gombieski. I'm the forest management supervisor. Um, our organizational structure is a little different than most. Uh, we don't have a assistant administrator. Uh, we have two of them, kind of. One runs the park and recreational side because we have a lot of recreational areas and our forestry program is pretty vast on mm -hmm. 284,000 acres. So um, I got my start here actually in 1995. It was my first summer job. I was in college as a wildlife management student, and uh, I found out what forestry is all about. I lived in industrial forest land, a lot of what John worked on, so I didn't even know the county forest existed until I worked here in the park system. I thought, oh, geez, this is this is awesome. And Three, four years later, I got a technician position. I worked two years here, worked as a field forester for 16 years here. And then I got a position for oh, three months, I think, as a forester. And then I got a team leader position for uh, around two years when that's when they changed the business structure here at our, at our county and uh, developed the position I'm in now. And I've been in this position for right around, I think, close to six years in the spring here. Coming back to what I know, I have grew up on this forest. I learned a lot here. So... It's, uh, it's been awesome. Got a great crew. I know when, Greg, we walk, when we're doing anything, if we're in Clark County or Douglas County, it's really a pleasure to see when you're driving, you know exactly what's going on in the woods. Like you, when you see the work you guys are doing, it's just fantastic. So good job. Yeah, we appreciate it. I hear that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Craig, I've been thinking, I, I've known you for quite a while, but I keep goofing up your name. But uh, I know when you were saying it in the beginning, I was paying careful attention and the L seems to be silent. So tell me if I pronounce this right. Gombieski. All right on. Sam, oh, wow. Just from knowing you so long. Wow. <laughs> I always get goofed up with the L. Like it, I just got to remember that's silent. Right. Yep. Kind of rolls off the tongue, Gombieski. But I've heard it every which way, Greg, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, no, I want to get that right. And I appreciate it. Yeah, go and be asky. Maybe that's evidence, Greg, that you actually attended Stevens Point, you know, for a school because I grew up in Stevens Point. It seemed like there were Shabilskis that started with a P R Y Z, and it was like I, you got to give up once in a while trying to pronounce the names. I don't know. I need to practice, I think. So, our tradition on Silvacast is that we kind of ask all of our guests, how did you get into forestry? What was the what was the thing that kind of made you say, you know, I think I want to be a forester? I kind of had an interest in forestry because I lived in industrial forest land. It was Mosny paper right out my back door. Didn't really know the county forest existed. And uh, my dad worked at Georgia Pacific and Superior making hardboard. And, you know, they, they took a lot of aspen in and, and different species and kind of get an interest there. But I was also a big deer hunter. And I thought, geez, I'm a big deer hunter. What do I want to do for a living? I want to, I want to be a wildlife manager until I got to college and realized yeah, well, it's going to be pretty competitive, my professors are saying, and you really plan on getting a job in that, the four-year degree? And I thought, well, what can I get a job in? And I could work in the woods, and here I am today as a forester. So that's kind of how I got my start in it. That matches mine. I started out in wildlife. Then I got okay. a little dose of realism. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that's a, that's a really good question. And, you know, thinking back on it, 
I actually remember, you know, back in grade school, sixth, seventh, or eighth grade, when they used to talk about careers and stuff. And I remember even back then saying, you know, I wanted to go into the forestry field. Um, I I can't pinpoint that that instance as to to why that was or when that was, but I did grow up in you know a very rural area, um, surrounded by agriculture. Um, I had family and friends that, that worked in paper mills. I, I do enjoy, you know, hunting and being outside and all those things. When you put them together, it just seemed like that was a really good fit. And, and I, I did manage to stay the course um, all the way through grade school and high school. Our high school agricultural teacher actually had a really strong uh, forestry background and, and spent some time in that uh, as part of his class. And, and that kind of solidified my choice. And uh, UWSP was right down the road. I did grow up in the Mosny area. So uh, commuting to one of the best uh, natural resources schools in the in the country, uh, all just lined up perfectly. So uh, I don't know that one that when that one day was or what that one instance was that said forestry was it, but um, it seems like I've been on this path forever. You guys are pretty consistent with the theme we've heard on other episodes from guests saying it was pretty young. Like you got an idea at least that you'd like being outside and you were exposed to it, and that sign of kind of helped you get down that road go, going toward forestry. Well, if you're going to do something the rest of your life, you might as well enjoy it. That was a guidance my dad gave me, and here I am today enjoying every day. Yeah, that's definitely the way to be. Uh, we brought you here because Brad and I were having this conversation about kind of the mechanical scarification stuff we do in the state. And uh, I'm not sure how much other states do, but uh, we have uh, organizations, county forests, like what you work for and others that do quite a bit of scarification of a variety of forms. And we thought, boy, that would be a really good tool in the toolbox to talk about. And we both know that both of you have just a ton of experience doing that in the field. And so we wanted to really delve into some of the logistics behind that. And we thought the timing here is good, right? So we're in the middle of October. Um, seed is dropping or has already dropped. Do, do you guys have any scarification operations going on now or have you just finished that up? Yeah, I can jump in first. I guess um, we are, we're in the middle of our scarification season down here uh, in Clark County. Um, we actually have a, a pretty nice acorn crop this year and, and all of our scarification is, is focused on, on oak regeneration. So We've got our, our skitter that we, we own as a county, uh, pulling an anchor chain through the woods, actually, as we speak. Uh, and then we also uh, contract with the DNR, and they uh, send a dozer over, and we do some blade scarification and, and rip springing of some, some competition in the understory as well. So those, those all get done the same time of year. We start in August, as early as August, on good acorn years, and we'll run right up until the ground freezes. So well after the acorns are done dropping, um, and as long as we can turn soil, uh, we're out there trying to get work done just because we've got more, more oak that needs to be treated than we can handle in any given year. And you got a good crop this year. So you're trying to take advantage of that. We do have a, a decent crop this year. Uh, last year was probably a little bit more robust, but this year is still good. Uh, it's pretty widespread, uh, really nice white oak acorn crop two years in a row. That's, uh, not the norm. So taking advantage of that for sure. Um, and the red oak is is decent from across our entire ownership. Sometimes it can get uh, localized. Certain areas will have acorns and certain areas won't, but this year it's pretty widespread. Craig, how about you? you guys got anything going on right now? Yeah, we actually do. We actually finished it up. Um, we do it across a whole pile of different cover types. We do um, scarification, whether it's loggers doing that in white birch to uh, mechanical scarification in red oak, um, lot and jack pine. Uh, right this year, you know, with active contracts, we sell a contract. We don't have any idea with the two-year contract period when we harvested. So um, we did have a lot of uh, contract work on sales that got harvested last spring and summer and the year before, you know, earlier this this fall. And then uh, we just had a couple of sites that uh, the timber sales actually got cut adjacent to some other sites, and we're looking at getting a. Uh, uh, a contractor in there. I talked to him this morning from Future Forest, George Swanson. Um, he's got a prototype disc we've been using the last few years to do uh, post-sale scarification to expose mineral soil to aerial seed in the spring. 
Um, we have about, about 48 acres, two different sites of that yet this fall. He's going to do what it looks like right before rifle season. If Mother Nature supports us, they'll get any frost in the ground. And then also we have really good white pine cone crop this year. So we're actually doing some scarification or some uh, white pine that got released in a, it was a white pine scrub oak stand. Uh, we don't grow white pine like they do in other parts of the state. You get in the central part, it's more like a weed. We get to work pretty hard to get it to come back here. So we have an opportunity with this cone crop that we're doing a, a smaller area within, um, you know, a scrub oak stand that uh, was coppice regenerated. So that'll be it for the fall. Uh, uh, we're doing that white pine with a straight blade. Also using, like John said, we use a lot of DNR personnel and their uh, fire suppression uh, dozers. And uh, they're right in the same area doing some burrowing for us for some red pine planting that we'll be doing in the spring. So it worked out pretty good. So a lot of different stuff going on right now. Oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. It's always never a dull moment. You know, when we talk about soil scarification, we think about a lot of different reasons we would use it. So we think about exposing mineral soil. So maybe that uh, the seed bed or incorporating the seed into the soil, maybe protect it or get it get going. Or we've even seen some limiting of interfering vegetation, you know, maybe getting rid of hazel or invasives or other thing. Do you guys do all of that at once or do you use it differently or how does that work for you guys? Well, I'll jump in. I think uh, it depends on the cover type, depends on how the sales, you know, the density of the sale when it first starts. Like we just, for instance, jack pine, you know, if we have stands that have low density, uh, our stems per acre, I should say before harvested, we'll do a lot of pre-sale scarification. Um, or we'll go in and, and, and scarify down to mineral soil. And at the same time, we have a lot of bur oak and upland brush, hazel brush, mostly competition. And then we've done a lot with sedge and then more open growing stands. And if you lay your seed from the tops that are harvested off the trees, you know, laid on them, them areas, you might get the cones to open, but they're not going to germinate. So looking to get uh, the dozers in there and peel some of that vegetative competition back at the same time. Um, exposed down to sand uh, in the jack pine sites. But what we've been dealing a lot with is five mile fire footprint, um, which is a large fire in, in the late seventies that burned about 5,000 acres in our county. And the stem density is, you know, 45 to 47 years old. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's unreal. You couldn't get a dozer in there if it was two feet wide. So uh, we're doing more post-sale scarification on them stands and there is more of a, a moss layer less competition because was crown um, on them sites we've been doing a lot of chaining and then more recently with this new prototype that george from future forest had this disc apparatus that he has with he can actually put down pressure down through hydraulic pressure and really uproot any hazel brush bur oak so it's doing the same thing at the same time on that post-sale and then we whole tree chip a lot of these sites too so um, we're finding out that removing that the, them tops and all that that logging debris that would be left out there helps uh, um, expose that soil. And we're we're getting a large percentage of the site covered in that. And then in in our oak, it's all dependent. You know, we try and be great if we could have every timber sale we ever set up an oak coincide with the good seed year, but that's just not in the cards. And more you limit contracts, obviously the less. Less restrictive, the more money it seems like you get more opportunity for logging contractors to get in there. And there we do a lot more post-sale work, kind of like John was saying, we wait for a good acorn year and uh, get in there post-sale, but we got to leave enough, you know, the the dominant trees that are good seed bearing to, uh, you know, fill that site up at, once we treat it after the fact. And John, you mentioned root springing, I think. And I know in Clark County Forest, you've got quite a bit of red maple. So is that kind of an objective of your scarification there is to get that competition knocked back? Yeah. So if you look at uh, what we, what we call root springing um, really what we're doing is, is targeting competition. So we're entering stands that in general have a decent amount of oak regen already started on them, but there might be competition factors, specifically uh, red maple. They come up pretty vigorously after they get cut in the understory. Um, and, and at times they can create, you know, uh, a canopy effect in the understory, even if you've got a shelter wood situation or something like that. So what we found is, is very effective is we can actually go in and target those stems, specifically those, those large clumps of red maple. Um, a dozer will come in, kind of get the edge of the, the blade underneath the, that, that sprout, that stump sprout, just literally push it over. doesn't even have to get it, you know, uh, completely dis, uh, dislodged from the ground, but tipped up and over. So the roots are exposed. 
um, those those stump sprouts essentially will die in a year or two after that. They might hang on for one or two years, but they do peter out. And you get two effects from that. One, you actually do uh, expose some more bare mineral soil. So if you do have some acorn crops that year that you do that, you can get some additional oak regeneration to sprout in those those small spots. And then number two, you're just knocking out that that red maple. That's always a, a huge competitor and, and usually outcompetes oak and if they're on the same playing field. So uh, it, it really sets it back. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a unique tool or concept. We've talked to some other counties uh, and I, th I think some of them are starting to incorporate it a little bit uh, around here as well. But yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been really effective. So there it's almost a release operation, but with a little bit of scarification for added potential oak regeneration. Yeah, no doubt. Actually, I, I do consider it more of a, a release treatment than, than a true uh, scarification to get regeneration because mm -hmm. the regeneration is already there. Is that, and you know, it's, it's really interesting, John, we come to Clark County. I always think, you know, like Park Falls, Wisconsin has the rough grouse capital of the world, a huge sign. I think we need to have one in Nielsville that says the uh, shelterwood capital of the world, because <laughs> you guys do a fantastic job. I mean, you can see them all over the place. So is that, again, that's kind of the primary use of it. You're not doing it to in, like incorporate the acorns into the soil or to get them going. You guys can get the, you, you kind of have the oak regeneration to work with before like like uh before you even get the scarification uh some sites yeah absolutely there's yep. some sites that just for whatever reason the maybe the last time it was harvested was maybe that was during a good acorn crop and those those acorns got incorporated during the harvest and they've regenerated uh they're healthy and the only thing we have to do is maybe knock the competition back a little bit before we take the overstory off um, but no, there, we have plenty of sites that we are starting from square one where we have zero regeneration and that's where we do what, what, uh, you know, there's a number of other tools, but if you're talking scarification, that's where we'll drag our anchor chains through them or, or a true blade scarification with a dozer if we're just trying to get extra acres in, um, if we've got a really good year, you know, that's where we'll contract the workout. So John, I'm interested in those oak stands that you have that you don't have pre-existing advanced regeneration and you're using that anchor chain. What does that look like? Like, how how are you using that anchor chain start to finish? Are you are you going in there with anchor chains after you cut a seeding cut of a shelter wood or some some other time? Sure, that's that's a good question, Greg. Um, so yeah, if, if we've got a site that we've determined doesn't have adequate regeneration, um, and it's a site that meets all the criteria as far as operability goes, um, we will then go ahead and do the the anchor chain process prior to the shelter wood cut our thought being that if you do it prior to the shelter wood cut you've got more of a chance long term to get regeneration established on that site because you um if we've got a good acorn crop year we've got a lot of stems prior to the shelter wood so there's more acorns on the ground um, you're exposing that bare mineral soil We'll follow that up with a, a usually a short timeline timber sale, one to two year, uh, no extension contract. Get those those harvested right away. Get the light onto the ground so those those acorns can germinate. And then in the off chance that that the the treatment didn't take for whatever reason, we still have an overstory there mm -hmm. um, after the slash is kind of broken down. If we need to go back in there and do another scarification or perhaps a prescribed fire or something like that, you know, we still got a seed source there. Um, so our thought is, you know, go in even before the shelter would and get the process started mm -hmm. versus, you know, getting closer to the end of the process where you're starting to limit yourself as to how much seed source you have on the site. And you're doing that. Are you trying to time that in the fall with the acorns? Absolutely. We, uh, you know, we, we don't send out our equipment just because of the cost um, if we don't have good acorn crops. So really we start looking for acorns middle of July, all the way through August. Um, determine where they are on the county forest. Um, like I said, sometimes they're localized and we have to target a certain area of the county forest. Other years like this, it's it's wide open so we can prioritize which stands we actually want to go into mm -hmm. based upon some other attributes, not necessarily yeah. just the location in the county forest. Yeah. Craig, I'm curious just because a lot of people obviously are interested in oak regeneration. What does your sort of recipe or procedure look like in your oak stands? Well, it's like John said, it varies geographically across the county forest. It's, we assess site by site, stand by stand. A lot of, a lot of stands, fortunately, um, due to the 
you know, the way they're structured have great oak regeneration established already. However, you know, there's just as many that don't, I guess. So um, what we'll do is we'll offer the contract period, but we try and leave adequate seed source. Um, and, and fortunately, we have a lot of uh, pole length whole tree contractors um, that bid and actually are successful bidders on these sales. Uh, so they do a lot of the work for us uh, in the oak wilt restrictions that we started entering in our contracts just a couple of years ago at entered Douglas County. You know, it actually it actually helps for them harvesting these stands later in the fall when there is some seed drop. So they're uh, pole length and whole tree. They're tilling a lot of that in as they harvest. And um, what we'll do is we wait three years on our oak sites to go in and assess, you know, what kind of regeneration we had at that point. And, you know, if it needs release work, we'll sign TSI. But if it doesn't, we use um, straight blade a lot of times. Um, there might be areas we take plots throughout the stand. You might have an area that took real well, 30, 30 acres of it and 30 that isn't. Well, then you can stratify them areas down and, um, you know, get, get the equipment, you know, where you need it. And um, like John said, we, we, don't, we don't hit it unless there's an acorn crop. We start assessing the same thing midsummer. You can see if they're starting to form. Um, and then you just kind of wait as you go, you know, if it's dry, like it was this year, yeah, well, they're going to have a great year. And then all of a sudden it just, everything peters out and starts, you know, dropping prematurely and none of them are viable. So, but it's the biggest thing is scheduling. We want to be able to schedule that and whether we're using contractors or, you know, utilizing the DNR dozers really helps a ton, um, because their, their flexibility is great. And then utilizing the County forest time standards, you know, they're going to be working and active on our forest anyway. So, and then, a lot of them have a forestry background, so they know exactly what we're looking for. There might be a two-acre patch where there's, yeah, hey, we want this 30 acres treated, but there's two acres that uh, they see the advanced regeneration, the regeneration from the harvest that's already present, and they go around that. So uh, compared to as a contractor, you give them a map, they're getting paid on the acres, unless you're out, right. you know, checking it out, it's, uh, they might blow right through that because they're getting paid by the acres. Um, but we use... We primarily use uh, the last couple of years, George, with that uh, that that disc again. It it's twofold. It takes care of a lot of the ironwood and non-desirable species, and at the same time, it's rolling some of the acorns in so the the um, deer don't go in there and scarf them all up, and the squirrels and everything else. So, um, getting really good results with both. Mm. So, a straight blade on a dozer and the disc with the hydraulic pressure. Yeah, and it's nice because he that thing the. The hydraulics. I'm not a big hydraulic and mechanical guy, but the he can he can bury that thing through an oak top. It's unbelievable um, how he can destroy them compared to a straight blade. You're more, you know, post sale rolling that stuff out of the way. But nice thing too with that is he can lift it up when he gets close to a, a residual tree and then put it right back down in the ground and do zero damage to them um, residual stems, uh, which which is what we really like. Have you guys tried other techniques for scarification that you maybe said, oh, that maybe that doesn't work. We're not going to use it anymore. And I'm thinking like, like you see bracky scarifiers or roller chop, things like that. Uh, we haven't used as much. I've been told, hey, look, at we roller chop a lot on our forest uh, in the mid 80s. There was a uh, ordinance passed after Vietnam that we couldn't use any herbicide or pesticides on our forest. So you know, in our toolbox is mechanical means. And we've had roller chopping done where you think, oh, that looks great. It's going to work out good. Um, and I, I still hit it. I just don't think um, that roller chopping's exposing enough for us. Yeah. And down here, it's it's very similar. We haven't used any roller chopping and or bracky scarification for years. And, and the bracky scarification we did use back in the 80s and 90s was actually for site prep for for planting for red pine planting and jack pine planting um, on our droughtier outwash sand soils that didn't have a lot of competition and it worked fine for that uh, just opening up a scalp to put a seedling in as long as you didn't have a lot of competition um, you get as soon as you got to our more music sites or heavier sites and you try to run a bracky through that didn't work um, those those scalps filled up so quickly with with grasses and sedges they just choked the, the seedlings out so um, I haven't seen it here on our county forest since I've been here, but definitely, you know, seen the results of it on the landscape. Well, we have done, Brad, some salmon blading on some white birch sites. Um, we got about 8,000 acres of white birch in the forest, and it was all pretty much, you know, the same age. We hit a drought cycle back in the 80s. It looks like a lot of that converted or, you know, you just lost your opportunity to regenerate it. And we found out in birch is... Um, 
you know, you want more of that mixing of the organic layer instead of just pure mineral soil because birch is a prolific seeder, but the seed is so small that any little fluctuations in moisture regime, it, it could burn it out pretty easily. So we've done more of the salmon blading if we don't get a, a contractor that pole length or whole tree skids that site. Um, that really works well too. It's the same tilling action that you're looking for. And we've had excellent success um, in birch regeneration over the last 10 to 15 years. Craig, can you explain what a salmon blade is? Because I don't know if everybody has seen that piece of equipment. Yeah, it's real similar. One we've utilized is just uh, an extension that fits right on the front of the straight blade. Uh, the DNR um, 450s we've used, uh, the operators too, they just, um, it, it's more of like teeth that come off the bottom of it that actually have little spoons that kind of roll that layer. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of nice too, because they, it flows some of the debris through it too, compared to a straight blade actually starts building and rolling the material almost like a, a plow would. And then you start, once you get under that root mat, it seems to peel all that organic matter that you're looking to hold that moisture off and you're getting down, which works great in, in jack pine and other things, but in birch, you don't want that action. So that salmon blade actually does more of a, a tilling with them little teeth that are uh, on that, on that blade. Yeah, I always think it looks a little bit like a root rake with a little spade on the end of yeah, each top, right. top tine. Tine. Yeah. Yep. And I was going to ask about root rakes. So you don't use those or you guys haven't tried or just doesn't fit into the uh, the program? No, we don't use that as much. It's not uh, as accessible. And then also um, we have used it a little just for slash. A lot of our red pine rotations, we've used it just to to get the slash off the sites because you're it's so heavy of a mat that we were not able to burn everyone in sites or sites for slash reduction. So we'll use that more or less just to, you know, slash to get a plow on the ground to um, get that that seedling bed built. Yeah, and same here that we we've, we've only used that the root rake for for slash control purposes. Um, we've had some discussions about potentially trying to use it in our oak stands uh, to do scarification. But the, the length of the tines on the root rake are such that I think we'd actually do more damage than, than good. I think they go a little bit too deep if you really jab them into the ground. Um, and you're going to be hooking roots nonstop. So I think the operator would get frustrated really fast using that piece of equipment in, in a forested situation. It's interesting to me, and I, I don't necessarily think about it, but you kind of have to think about why are you using it in order to decide what piece maybe is the best tool for the job. And then if you have multiple tools available, that might be, you know, one of those things you can play with as a forester deciding between a root rake and a anchor chain and, you know, salmon blades, stuff like that, depending upon the purpose. Yeah. Right on. And we're not reinventing the wheels. A lot of people have done it before us. And they've the thing about the County forests is you learning curve short because, you know, we we're very active when you harvest 4,800 acres per year or set it up. Um, so there's, you learn quick, you know, what works and doesn't work. I don't know about you, Greg, but I think the cool thing about this is you can't really go read about this any place though. Mm -hmm. Like it's all experience. It's all stuff that you guys are doing that's just never written down. Or if it does get written down, it's not as much as like, you know, other things that we do in forestry. So this is really the experience, the go do it, try it, see if it works part mm -hmm. of it. And I like the, just uh, the conversation about tailoring the piece of equipment to kind of the biology of the species that you're you're working for like craig you mentioned using the salmon blade on birch and you're trying to incorporate a little bit of that organic matter within that soil to make sure that seed doesn't dry out because that's um, an issue with that species whereas jack pine you're really exposing soil and just getting that seed directly on soil so just thinking about how to tailor the equipment for the target species, I think is a really important lesson. Oh, absolutely. Yep. And I'm curious, so maybe thinking about it in terms of like, say you're going to scarify, how do you decide how much of an area is good enough when you're scarified? Like, or how do you set those targets for how much area to scarify? I know for us, when, when we pick, when we go to a, a site, you know, we, we generally have already done a seedling count on the site. So like Craig mentioned earlier, if there's, if there's an area that has oak regeneration in it, we stay out of those areas. So, you know, those, those kind of come off of the, the top of the, like, if you got a 40 acre site, five acres comes off right off the top, but the actual core area where we're, we're chaining, like we're, we're trying to get as much as possible. And really the only limiting factor is 
um, you know, your tree spacing. If you've got good spacing that you can get your equipment through, um, you can do a really nice job of getting 80 plus percent uh, soil scarification. Um, the way we do ours is, is we actually do a checkered board approach on it. So we'll do the site all maybe running north south, um, get all the, the vegetation kind of mat, matted down, and then we'll come back across the site east west. And then that second pass on the site really is the pass that exposes the bare mineral soil. The first site kind of really gets the everything matted down, that duff layer kind of initially opened up. The second pass completely completely opens bare mineral soil for us. It, it, start, it starts to drag some of the, the red maple stump sprouts that were popped out on your first pass. They, they come out, they get hooked on the chain, they, they disrupt more soil. So, you know, we really try and get as, as much of the site as possible. And, you know, between topography, wet soils and, and tree spacing, those are, are your only limiting factors. How about you, Craig? Is, is that pretty similar for you? Yeah, it's real similar, John. Hit all the points there pretty much. And, you know, a lot depends on post-sale versus pre-sale. You know, pre-sale in a jack pine setting or oak setting, I mean, obviously you want as much as you can outside of them advanced regeneration areas. But, you know, we'll have operators that, you know, that I always say, well, we want 60% minimum and then you'll have 5% of it. I'm like, hey, that's right on. That's that's awesome. And they take a lot of pride in their work, even the ones you hire out. Um, we don't have the personnel to do a lot of it internally with their own county personnel, but we use, you know, DNR employees and then also contractors. That's what they do for a living. And they want to meet our objectives and having that good pre-op with them and talking about these things is huge. But then pre-sale, I always err on that 60%. And something to keep in mind is these are contracts that are usually sold already. So when they bid on these contracts, you have to, you know, you get an experienced operator and that piles up dirt and, and mounted up material next to the the trees that they're going to be harvesting, you're going to hear about it. I mean, yeah. it's not good. Or you get an operator starts peeling up the stumps and takes the butt log out of a bolt in a jack pine setting or oak. It's you hear about it in a hurry because these are sold sales. It's already been agreed upon that. Hey, give us some advance warning and in three months we'll have this thing scarified. So um, no, no, you know, that's where I always say 60% minimum in them sites, because it's like, you know what, we don't have to get 99%. It still seems like we hit 80, 90% of, which is great. And then wholesale, obviously they're covering the whole site. I mean, it, it really, the coverage is unbelievable. I mean, they're hitting every, every inch of it. It's like mowing the lawn. I know we talked about that, Craig, when we were working on the Jack Pine chapter in terms of just operator experience and making sure they didn't pile dirt next to trees or that. Feathering a little bit, feathering instead of cashing that stuff. Now you got, we called, uh, we had a, it was a a county operator years ago. He tried to do a blade scarification in Jack Pine with a D5 and we call it the Great Pyramids because (laughs) (laughs) years from now, they're going to think, what the heck were these guys doing in there? Yeah, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's right on, Greg. It's a lot of the experience. And then, you know, if you do have an operator, they want to do what you, you got to put the time in with them up front and say, hey, this is my objective, follow up with them, go out there when they first start to make sure it's meeting the objectives. Related to this, do you guys have any numbers or concepts in terms of uh, rate of production for using some of these various pieces of equipment? Like how many acres can they do in an hour or a day? Well, operability is a big thing again, stem density, but boy, I tell you, experienced operators just blow my mind. I mean, I've seen in Jack Pine pre-sale scarification, they're doing upwards of close to two acres an hour. Um, and then, uh, you know, you got a real dense site where you're still doing that pre-sale in, in either oak or um, Jack Pine and it, it's lower. It might be a acre, acre and a half, but then, you know, some of them sites have more ironwood competition. And if you're going to do that root spring, it takes a little bit more work. Um, the contracted rates with that disc are, they're unbelievable. I think he's doing upwards of probably four acres an hour. Yeah. I would imagine that'd be faster. Mm-hmm. It's faster, but it's, it's not a track machine either. It's a rubber tired machine. And I'm sure John's, I don't know what he's, his rates are in the chaining, but you know, it's a rubber tired skidder. They can go a little bit faster. So I don't know. We'll let John answer that portion. Yeah. And actually I just had a conversation with um, our foresters here this morning. And, you know, since we're doing some, some sites as we speak, we, we kind of could crunch the numbers. And most recently here, we are using a rubber tired skidder. So it is definitely faster than a, than a dozer or anything that's tracked up. The first pass that I was talking about in our check and broad pattern, we're, we're averaging like two, two and a half acres per hour. 
and it, and again, this is so you're, this is oak oak scarification with a fully stocked stand of oak. So you're dodging trees. You got to deal with topography. You've got wet areas, um, but that's that's still a pretty good that's pretty pretty good rate. The second pass, uh, we can almost double that. So we're at three to five acres per hour, depending upon the site. Once the site is wide open and you can see what's coming in front of you, you I mean, you can once the guys are comfortable in the skidder, they they can cook along the site pretty good. But then you always got to you got to think about it. you got to bring it back down, you know. So what was the true hours, you know, acres per hour? Because you're doing the site twice, um, so you're probably looking around, you know, two acres per hour. Mm-hmm. And if, again, that's two passes on the site. So something very similar to what Craig's saying. And just as, as long as we're talking about logistics tier two, I know I've had this conversation with others about how deep are we trying to scarify or is that going to depend on the species? So uh, Craig, you already mentioned there's a little difference, for example, whether you're doing birch or jack pine. Uh, So what are you telling your operators in terms of just how deep to go, how much exposure and so on? Well, in jack pine, it's fairly easy. It depends on site by site once again, but it's uh, um, you can tell when that organic layer ends, it's darker what I found out is you get an operator, yeah, they peel it all off. It's black. I mean, it's brownish black. It's a dark organic layer. It's real thin, obviously, in the sand. But if they don't they don't get deep enough in that where it's actually the pure mineral soil of, of sand, um, it uh, it sedges up and brushes back in so fast that a lot of times it just, just like the Bracky situation John had mentioned earlier, it just chokes them seedlings. They push themselves. Mm-hmm. And just observationally, we don't do our checks in our seeded sites till five years because you start with a jack pine seeding, it might be one inch the first year. Um, and you go out there and you look a couple of years in, oh man, we got great regeneration. You come back year five and everything's gone because it got choked out because you didn't go deep enough. So that's something that we really monitor out there to get cheap enough in our jack pine. Our oak, not so much. It does, you know, it depends on if the site's got a lot of sedge, the uh, previous treatments that happened in there or not, um, if it was opened up or you get your textbook oak where you go in there and it's oak leaves underneath, you know, you don't do a heck of a lot in there uh, compared to birch where, like you said, you know, it almost looks like it, it doesn't look like it even got scarified. So, um, but they roll everything around, roll it in and get that organic really mixed in and it doesn't take much for birch, but uh, some oak sites, you know, they're, they're getting fairly deep in that too, especially on sites that we're doing post-sale where, you know, you might have three years of non-desirable species that jumped up waiting for a, a, a acorn crop. You know, they got to get pretty deep to uproot some of that, that ironwood and aspen and maple that come up in them sites. I, I'm curious. So we've talked a lot about, okay, here's all the scarification we need to do, but, but I think Craig, you alluded to it that a lot of times you can get a scarification effect as a part of the timber sale itself. Do you, do you talk to like the, the people who buy the timber sale or your, your contractors, others who are saying, Hey, if you can do this as a part of your timber sale, do it. Or do you just take it? If you get it, you get it with scarification as a part of a timber sale. No, we've done a lot of sales where um, it'll be pole length or whole tree only. And then uh, especially in our birch sites, if we got larger sales where, you know, our capacity is down where we know we don't have the operators to pull it off. We'll, We'll limit that contract period to say, hey, it's got to be non-snow cover conditions, which is six inches of lesser snow prior to January when the ground's froze hard as a rock. Um, and then we'll limit them from that September on to that time period. And then we'll actually, what we've learned is we've gotten into more of the seed trees as far as birch. We were doing shelter woods and we found out that, geez, if the timing of harvest is right on, we're saving ourselves a lot of work down the road, having to go back in and and take that overstory off um, in a seed tree sense. We're meeting our green re- green tree retention guidelines, um, and we we're, we're getting adequate stocking, leaving that seed source in case it does fail. But at the same time, you know we're gonna have to go back and reestablish an overstory removal on them sites. But no, we've done it before. We haven't done it as much in our oak, um, in but we will work with contractors and say. You know, we got, we got a great group of contractors, you know, or it'll be, Hey, you got this contract, boy, we got a great, you know, seed year here. Can, can you move into this sale? And Hey, me, you have, that's a year, you know, older, but man, it'd be perfect timing right now to get this thing harvested. So um, now they work with us as well. And our forest is broken up into four different areas as far as management foresters. And, you know, they're, they're pretty in tune with the contracts they have on the books within their management area. And, And John, how does that work for you? Yeah, so years years ago we tried to implement some 
timing of harvest restrictions, additional restrictions, specifically on like our oak shelter woods and things like that. Um, and what we found is that at least down here with the, the quality of oak that we're dealing with and uh, the number of sawmills and the, the fluctuations of the market, it was really, it really was hard to sell those sales. Um, a lot of these guys are putting a lot of money down on stumpage to cut these sales. So they, they're following the markets more so than what's going on in the, the treetops with the acorns. So we found that it was, it was kind of hard to really limit those guys from that end, that standpoint. But what we, what we do know is there are times like a year like this year where we've got a really good acorn crop and it's dry. So we've got a ton of logging activity going on. You know, we always had that inkling like, well, we, we got acorns or we got good oak regeneration on, on this stand the last time it was thin, but why? And there was no documentation of what happened and very little, you know, documentation on when the operation actually occurred. Um, so what we're doing now is, is we're, we're taking a lot more notes, um, specifically both hard copy notes and, and notes that we can enter into our, our, uh, our whispers recon information right on the computer. When, when we do the sale closeout, was it a good acorn year? Mm. You know, were they operating when those acorns were dropping before they were dropping, after they were dropping? And then, you know, five years from now, we have that information. You know, did, did that make a difference as to whether or not we got oak regeneration or we didn't? But it is interesting, you know, some of the sites that might look the nastiest from a soil disturbance standpoint, and, and we're all very sensitive to aesthetics and forest certification and everything. At the end of the day, some of those sites get our, our best oak regeneration on them. You know, I, I often say you really got to beat the site. It's up. They got to. They kind of got to look like they were. Um, they're almost almost like they were destroyed. To, and then those are the sites that really get good good acorn regeneration. You're getting more bare mineral soil exposed, but it, it's counterintuitive to the way people want to see forest management in some instances. That's kind of another topic or a question I had for both of you. You know, mechanical scarification, just like you said, John, it's a lot of site disturbance. And so there can be complicating factors in there, right? You've got wetland inclusions in your site. So sensitive soils, you might have sensitive or threatened endangered plant species. Are this, what are some, are there some situations that you run in commonly on your property where you've got to think about how you're doing that scarification or maybe altering what you're doing? The, the wetland one is, is probably the biggest. And, and for that, it's more, it's, it's got to make sure your operator is keeping their eyes open. Otherwise, if you get into a bad spot, you suddenly, you're at a standstill, quite literally, you know, sunk in the mud and, and you got to get a dozer in to pull it out. But, you know, we try and map those things out ahead of time as best we can. What's really cool the last couple of years is, you know, the inclusions of these, these iPads and iPhones and stuff like that um, are our foresters down here are using the Avenza map program a lot where you can upload a, a georeference PDF. And we're, we're literally going out and finding this stuff ahead of time, putting it on the map. And then we've got a, the, the iPad is actually mounted right in the skitter and it's turned on while they're going and they can see right where they are on the site. If they're getting close to an area that's wet or maybe a steep hill, uh, steep topography, or if there was anything that uh, was maybe archeologically related um, that we need to avoid you know, it's, it's right there on the map and it's, it's super easy to avoid now with that type of technology where um, before maybe you had to go out and flag it out by hand before you got in there. Craig, how about you? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a balance there. Uh, in our jack pine sites, you know, it's uh, Barron's habitat is, you know, it's a globally threatened resource, I guess. And there's a lot of uh, available money that helps us do a lot of this scarification out there. And I've worked with the wildlife folks because I've, I've done for scarification before aerial seeding, I've done disc trenching, furrowing. Um, but at the same time, they want that, that native plant flush, you know, that's been waiting in the seed bank after you open that jack pine sale up. That's what they're getting their bang for the buck at the same time that we're regenerating a stand and establishing a new um, fiber, you know, supply coming up and that, that new regenerated stand. And it's good for a certain species of wildlife for a certain period of time. And, you know, we're finding out, hey, how far can we push it as far as exposed mineral soil at the same time, meet their objectives at the same time? Because, you know, anytime you can get a partner in any sort of management you're doing financially is huge. 
And I've worked with some wildlife folks, uh, you know, Greg Kessler, Bob Hansen, um, locally here, and they've uh, last couple of years gotten um, some people out there to do plant surveys and stuff to see, hey, does this this type of mechanical scarification is are we meeting the objectives that we did when we were changing versus you know just naturally? Um, but let's let's all be honest, we're all we're all trying to mimic a natural event that occurs. We're just we're just playing, you know the nature here and we're trying to mimic fire or, or a huge blowdown event or whatever. And I don't think them things were real pretty either. So um, fortunately in our sand, we don't have to worry about as much erosion, but the, there's a lot of sedge metals, things like that. And our, in our, our oak stands and birch stands, you know, there, there's a lot of wetland types. There's a lot of difficulties getting into a lot of them locations too, but our operators, they recognize them areas like Johnson, the technology. Now we got photos that are I mean, there's six inch resolution. You can dang near see a guy's uh, lunchbox sitting on the ground. Just amazing <laughs> compared to, you know, when we first, when I first got into it, you pulled the old hard copy photo out. And you, ah, yeah, there's right. an Aspen clone. I think I'm right here. You know? I was driving down the, I was driving down the highway the other day and looking at my Google map along the way. And I'm like, geez, if I had air photos like that, when I <laughs> yeah. was, yeah, it's just amazing. Now. Uh, recon. It's just amazing. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, you wait until you got the next photos to see what your sale actually looked like. Cause you were kind of guessing. You know? yeah. So, um, but that technology has <laughs> yeah. helped out a ton and, and, you know, the operators are running the same thing. So whether it's DNR or contracted operators, so that, that helps a ton. Brad, you and I have had that same conversation uh, with others about, as Craig said, that balance between disturbance. Right. In some cases, it's actually in Barron's habitat, for example, promoting the species that they're trying to get plant-wise on the site. But then there's other areas. I know Jennifer Boyce on the Black River, she works uh, with Armin Bartz there, and, and they'll take uh, small populations of rare plants and map those out and not sc- or scarify around those. So it's kind of finding what that balance is, like you said. And, and sometimes even aesthetics come into play too, because I know depending upon where you are, what type you're going to use. And, you know, actually, I, one thing I hate to bring up, how much does cost come into to play in kind of deciding what type of scarification to use? Because, I mean, it's going to be hard, you know, because the dollars per acre or, you know, everybody, we have to all look at it a little differently, but how do you guys kind of process that? It's not all about the money, but it's all about the money. Right. So, um, you know, I, it's definitely a balance. Uh, It's a balance with, you know, landscape management. It's also a balance with other factors out there. We haven't mentioned once about, you know, our biggest predator up here, which is the deer eating all of our seedlings, especially oak and jack pine. Um, It's something we battle all the time and in, we found out is, is these larger sales, especially in a jack pine or oak, you know, kind of wash it out a little bit and the deer don't feel secure. So we're doing bigger sales, bigger areas, which also might be aesthetically unappealing, but you get more bang for your buck in a bigger sale too. You get a contractor moving in one time and they're going to treat 150 acres versus three times. They got to move in three contracts. It's going to be 50 acres a piece. And, you know, the not having a furrow with a jack pine planted straight down it um, where a deer walks down and eats every single one of them, then your bud cap and everything else where natural regeneration, you know, it might be supplementally seeded or or however you regenerated it on a scarification sense. It doesn't, the deer don't, I mean, don't get me wrong. They're out there chewing on them, but uh, it seems like we have a little bit greater success there, you know, doing that. And we're doing it at a fraction, the cost of you know, it would be to, to, for us to roller chop just to, for the vegetative competition and then, and then furrow or trench and then hand plant. And then there's also a time frame there where you're waiting, you know, we're waiting, you know, a period of time for the stumps to rot down so you can do that. And at the same time, all your competition's getting a big jump on you and we can't use any herbicides. So we'll have sites, like I said, we just had uh, two sales harvested. They finished up last week, literally, and I'll be scarifying them here in a couple of weeks and then seed them in the spring. So them trees have the same opportunity to compete with that competition, you know, and get a, get a big jump compared to waiting a couple of years. And then, you know, establishment of a, a plantation is going to be more than double of what I can scarify and, and then possibly seed or pre-sale scarify and use a native seed on the site. John, how does that work for, uh, for Clark County? Yeah. So Craig hit it right on the head right away. There's a cost to everything and none of this stuff is cheap especially when you start talking about the size of equipment that 
that we're using. My predecessor here, Rick Daly, um, was was with the county for I think almost 30 years, but but during his administration, they did a phenomenal job of of educating our committee and our county board on the, on the importance of maintaining oak on the landscape long term. And over the years, we actually developed. Uh, we got to the point where we are putting a percentage of our tim- annual timber revenues back into a pot that's that's for forest regeneration, um, both artificial and and natural, if you want to call it that, with the scarification processes. So locally here, we've developed a very uh, a healthy fund that that allows us to do this work. But I know that that's you know that cost is really a huge hurdle. You know, especially if you're talking the private landowners, small scale, and even some of the other counties that that maybe don't have as supportive of uh, committees and, and county boards for what they're trying to accomplish on the landscape. So, so we are lucky. With that being said, you know, I was trying to crunch some numbers before I figured it would come up, but you know, we're looking at anywhere from a hundred to to two hundred dollars an acre to do anchor chain anchor chain scarification. So what? So that it that's the cost of fuel. That's your labor cost, and if you bought a piece of equipment, you, you know you got to you got to factor that in. Uh, our skidder we bought in 2019, it was actually a replacement. We had a, a smaller one prior to this. You know that was an eighty thousand dollar piece of equipment. Um, that's that's not cheap. And if we actually had to rent a skidder the year before that uh, because our the one that we had was was down for mechanical issues. And it cost us, uh, I believe it was $9,500 a month. And that didn't include the delivery cost of it. We, we were able, it was luckily the, the weather was good that year. We had a, a good acorn crop. We were able to get 200, over 200 acres accomplished. So that came to like $100, $100 an acre just for the piece of equipment. And again, that didn't count your labor, um, any repairs that we had to do. Plus we put the fuel in it. So it adds up quickly. If you compare that to something like uh, prescribed burning, you know, it, it can be right in line with the same same price, but but prescribed burning is is really really variable. If you have, you know, a small burn um, with a lot of people and a lot of equipment, that cost per acre is very very high. Versus, you know, if you do a one or two hundred acre burn with the same amount of people and uh, equipment, well, then that cost is is lower. So that that you can't necessarily compare them apples to apples, but it gets you in the ballpark. And John and Craig, maybe this is an obvious question. It seems like scarification is a very important tool in your toolbox for both of you and both of your forests. And so kind of how would you rank that (laughs) as how important is that? I know we mentioned, for example, prescribed burning, and I know both of you uh, on those on your forest do prescribe burning as a way again to maybe accomplish some of the same objectives in a different way. Um, but as we know, you can't prescribe burn all the time or all places. And so scarification comes into play there. Um, so I just kind of interested in your overview of just how important is that tool and what do you see? Uh, for results. You obviously keep doing it, so you must have some results. Yeah, I mean, for us, scarification is is probably our, our number one priority to promote oak regeneration on the landscape. And, you know, I guess, you know, we've kind of put our money where our mouth is. You know, we were able to to, to purchase a, a really large piece of equipment, and, and we justified it by, you know, showing how important it is to keep that oak resource on the landscape. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Like it's not the only tool that we use. Um, and you know, you don't, you don't get acorns every year. You know, there, there have been a few years where either because of acorns or because of weather, you know, we were only, we, we weren't able to hardly do anything as far as, as scarification goes. So then you got to fall back on some of the other tools that are in your toolbox. You know, maybe we focus more on those sites that had regeneration in them already. And we do more red springing. If we're able to get you know, a window for doing burning, you know, we'll do as much burning as we can, but those windows are short. And sometimes you just, it, it's a waiting game. But, but as far as the priority goes, you know, uh, scarification is, 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 is our number one tool to, to really regenerate some of these stands. Um, we just have, we have the right soil types that, that it works on. Uh, it'll carry the equipment. We, we get very good uh, germination rates uh, here in Clark County. So, you know, because of the success that, that's been shown over the years, you know, we're going to keep it going. Hmm. Yeah. And just to build off that is 
you know, it's, it's huge in our toolbox. You know, like John said, obviously you can't burn every site. Uh, we do try and we do a lot of prescribed burning, but we try and leave them for our larger sites where we get them cost per acre a lot lower. Um, we have a lot of swamp in our forest. So there's a lot of areas you, you just can't get to to burn and get a drivable break into it and things like that. But the biggest thing for scarification is I can pull the trigger when I, when I want to. Burning, I can't do that as much. Um, we, we get a good acorn crop. I'd love to burn it. Well, it might be drier and who knows what the burn boss is. Absolutely not. Or we don't have the personnel or we're staffing for fire where I can pull the trigger on scarification and, and get a lot of acres done in a hurry. Um, when, the, when the timing's good, I'm, I'm a firm believer in burning though. You can get a really meet the objectives really well, but we try and keep a few in the hopper, um, continuously and, um, not, put all our eggs in that basket, I guess, say we, we try and mix it up. So we, we always have a few burns ready to go. So if the timing is right, but now the, the scarification is huge on our forest too. And man, we've had such good results with it, you know, and all different kinds of cover types that, uh, you know, like you said, you, you get it done for half the price. And then, you know, one advantage we have too, is we have a lot of county forest time standards. I mentioned that again, we can get a straight blade or a salmon blade into a site and not have to pay for the operator. It's, it's, Unbelievable. I mean, you're talking cost of straight blade scarification, jack pine have been in the low 40s per acre. That's with a dozer. I mean, it's just, it's almost unbelievable. So great partnership. We have a bunch of operators in our area that use a lot of their dozers a lot. And it also, it's twofold. It helps them their fire control. They have to have so many hours of training on a dozer every, or operating on a dozer every single year. It helps them out too. So, and then having somebody that's just not a dozer operator. They have a forestry background on these sites and the scarification helps because you might have a site that's, you know, half regenerated already. Well, you don't want to go in there and burn it and have these little micro pods. It's a lot easier to go in there and scarify them areas to get the regeneration going in them spots. Yeah. And you're, you Craig are like you talked about, you're kind of targeting a whole suite of disturbance related species. So not only your oak, but your jack pine, your paper birch, um, and your white pine. So I think Brad, you said it earlier, kind of this area, there's not a lot of places you can go and read about this. Um, it really is built on experience. We do try to incorporate some of this information into our guidance that we develop but it really is kind of passed down from practitioner to practitioner. So yep. I really appreciate both you, John, and you, Craig, coming to share some of that experience today. Yeah, you bet. And we try and showcase what we're doing. We've had groups of people or get-togethers, hey, come up and well, I'll do a little white birch walk and talk. And same thing with Jack Pine. I mean, I just, same thing happens for us. I try and, you know, get myself in a lot of them spots. Somebody's talking about that, hey, I want to go see what they're doing, you know, so we can learn from each other. And this is great about having this, this session here today as people can learn from what other people are doing. Hopefully years from now, people will be referencing this episode with talking about the work that you guys told us about. So we really appreciate it. And John, thank you very much too. And for sharing that Clark County experience. We, you, Brad and I use it a lot. Yep. yep. <laughs> Yeah, you guys are always more than welcome. Um, we, we love hosting folks. And like Craig said, the outreach part is is extremely important. You know, I remember reading about some of this stuff in college, but until we actually seen it on the ground, you couldn't you couldn't put wrap your head about around how how the process works and the timing. And it is it is a, a pretty uh, intricate program when you start to manage these species that need disturbance. And there's a lot of different ways to go about it, too. There's not just one one magic golden egg that works on every single site. So you just keep trying things. And what I always tell folks is, you know, if, if you're interested in trying to, to regenerate oak, try something, you know, if, if you just leave it sit, that's what you're going to get. And you might try something and you might fail, but at least you tried something. John, I may have to put you on speed dial for that one. Well, thanks for sharing your time out of your busy schedule here, especially here in the fall. I know it's time is precious in October. So yep. thanks. Thanks guys. That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is our regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, whatever you send us, and share them with our listeners. And Brad, I was thinking today when we were talking with Craig and John that there's probably a lot of scarification techniques that we haven't even thought of or we don't use here in Wisconsin. And I would love to hear anybody that has new ideas or pieces of equipment 
um, and ways of scarifying that uh, we didn't talk about to maybe send a message into the Dropbox. We would love to see that. Right. We'd love to see what you're doing for scarification. I mean, we didn't go into it, but, you know, like talking about topography as a part of this, that's mm-hmm. something that oh, yeah. I know some of you, I know some of you out there are dealing with this. So let us know about that um, or anything else related to scarification, you know, tips, techniques, you name it. We'd love to hear about it. Yeah. And then we can look for opportunities to share that. And as a reminder, our Dropbox website is located on the Silvacast website. As usual, Brad, we just scratched the surface on that topic. That was for you, Paul DeLong. Yeah, that was good. That was good. <laughs> how, how long did you think about that one? That was a, a while. Yeah, well, that was good. And you know what? I didn't get to use my silviculture term of the, of the week. What is that? So according to the Dictionary of Forestry, yeah. the term for this week would have been screef. I'll use it in a sentence. Okay. I heard a loud screef come from Greg's house when he came in with the dirty dog. Okay. That's not how it's used. That's not how it's used. It's defined as to prepare a forest soil for planting or seeding by pushing aside the humus layer to expose mineral soil. Part of scarification. There you go. It was, it was beautiful. Yeah. We've been, we've been talking about screefing. Okay. I, I, okay. We've, we finished screefing. In any event, thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. And Brad, as you know, this is our last episode with our fun, energetic, and creative editor and producer, Haley Frater. Haley is moving on to new and exciting work with the Wisconsin DNR. And Silvacast would not be what it is today without her. So I just want to say thank you, Haley, for all you've done. And most of all, for putting up with Brad and myself. So best best wishes on the new job. Yeah, congratulations and good job. I couldn't be more excited for you. So uh, Haley is passing the reins on to Megan Espy, who is our new producer. And we've worked with Megan on a variety of projects through the Wisconsin Forestry Center in the past. Mm -hmm. So we know Silvacast is going to be in good hands. So get ready, Megan. Here we come. (laughs) Yeah. No, yeah. Everything's going to be fine, Megan. You you may have heard stories. (laughs) You may have heard rumors. No, no. It's going to be great. Yeah. It's all good. So take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team, Haley Frater, our editor-in-chief, Noah LeMade, our IT master, theme music by Paul Freider, and of course, UW Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center.